Welcome everybody, we finished our study of the first two books in the series, which were the Emunis Videis of Rabsadi Goyen and the Chavis Alavavis of Rabachia Ibn Bakudeh. And now we are moving on to the third Sefer that we're studying in this series, um, in season three of The Great Sources. The third book that we are studying is the book known as the Kuzari. And I say known as the Kuzari because the actual name of the book, translated from the Arabic, is the defense of the despised faith. The nickname of the book is the Kuzari. Now, the author of this book is Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, who was born in the end of the 11th century in Spain. Yehuda Halevi, the noted poet who wrote the great Piyutim, some of which are part of the Shabbos Mirrors and some of which are part of the Kinnis on Tishabov. I'm not going to tell you much about Yudah Levi. If you don't know about him, it is worth studying this great and fascinating and truly unique figure. So this book, like our previous two books that we studied, were was written in Judeo-Arabic. And like the previous two books that we studied, this book was translated by Yehuda ibn Tibon. Famous translated fa translator families, the Ibn Tibbons. And um, that was the classical edition for hundreds of years. And also similar to the previous two books that we studied, today there are more modern translations, more approachable and more readable translations. I'm going to tell you a little bit about some of the editions that are available and um, which ones I like. There's Rav Yosef Kaibach did a translation of the Kuzari, which is nice because it has the original, the original Judeo-Arabic. So if you know any Judeo-Arabic, or if you need to compare, if you really want the original, that's a, a good uh, addition of that. I'm not that familiar with the translation, so I won't comment on it. There's a very fine and readable translation by Yehuda Evan Shmuel. It was done about 50 years ago, I'm going to say, but that's an approximation, I don't know exactly. And that's a very fine, a very popular translation put out by Devere, very readable, and it, and it flows very nicely. And if you want to get an overview of the book, just really just to get a basic sense of the Kuzri, that's a very nice and easy read that flows. If you want something a little bit more advanced with extensive and very valuable footnotes, you can use the edition done, translated, by Michael Schwartz, who did a beautiful job on translating and annotating the Kuzri with a very fine bibliography and explanation of key terms in the back. Now, those are just some of the editions, ones I'm familiar with. Perhaps there are more. There's also the Feldheim one in English. I'm not so familiar with the quality of that translation. But if you want it in English, there is one edition by Feldheim. Again, I don't know. Can't vouch for the quality of the translation there. Um, if you want an introduction and a general sense of what this book is all about, I must recommend to you a lecture from season one of The Great Sources, season one, episode seven, called The Lost Judaism, an Introduction to Kuzari. And that is, I'm going to put the link here, and that is still Highly recommended if you haven't heard that yet, if you want to review as a basic introduction, but a, a fundamental introduction to the ideas, to the main ideas that are at the heart of this unique safer and extremely important safer. What we're going to do in this series is the same thing we've done to the other two books that we've studied, which is that I am basically going to review or paraphrase the book for you. What we're going to learn about this wonderful book, there are some very important fundamental ideas that are unique to this one. He talks about the nature of Judaism, per se, the importance of the commandments, the fulfilling the acts of the commandments, how, why those are so important, how important it is to have tangible, visible manifestations of spiritual matters, of God and spiritual matters. A major part of the book is the importance of the Holy Land, Eretz Yisrael, and the Holy Tongue, 
related to that too is the superiority or what is special about B'nai Yisrael. Those are some of the very fundamental ideas of this book. Now, I'm giving you a little bit more of an overview and then we're going to jump right in. The book is divided into five essays, five ma'amor and five essays. And briefly, I'll tell you what's in each one. In the beginning, the first one has this challenge about which religion or which idea about God is superior. That is to say, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, and also philosophy, the philosophical ideas about God. Which ones are superior? There's a sort of little debate that goes on. I'll tell you more, more about that today as we get into that. He talks about the fundamentals of Judaism and how it's based on revelation and history, as opposed to pure thought. And that's where this book is being differentiated from the previous ones that we've learned, which are more about um, things that you can either deduce or experience, as any, any Admiral Zadeus talks about, things that we can know, that we can prove. Chavaz of Avos talks about a religious kind of attitude, a religious kind of psyche. Yudah Levi focuses on a completely different angle, which is the history of the Jewish people and the history of Revelation. Related to that, which is another thing which is going to be in the first Mimer, continuing what the first Mimer is about, he talks about what is special about B'nai Yisrael, about the Jewish nation, and how to connect to the Dover Ha'alaki, or the Indian Ha'alaki, the divine command, the divine word, which is a, a, a very important term in this book, which means the various aspects that the divine interacts with this world, the key idea in the whole book, that is a, a method that the divine interacts with this world, and that method is through the Torah and through the chosen people and the chosen land. In the second essay, Buddha Levi reviews, discusses, I should say, the names of God and his attributes. There he talks a lot in some famous passages about the Holy Land, about Etzisrom. He talks about the reasons for sacrifices and what is special about the Holy Tongue. Of course, Buddha Levi was a master poet, a master of Lashem HaKadosh. The third essay, he talks about being a good Jew. What does it mean to be pious? What is the religious life supposed to look like? And in the third essay, he also addresses another opponent that he's defending Judaism against, which is the Karaim, those who denied the oral law and looked only to the written Torah for religious guidance. So this book, as we mentioned, is called The Defense or Apology of the Despised Faith. And as you see, he's going, he's defending Judaism, despite the fact that it's in the position of being despised. He's defending it against Islam, Christianity, philosophy, and enemies from within. Those are the Karaites, those who only believed in the written law. And that's all in the third essay. He deals with the Karait attack on uh, traditional rabbinic Judaism. And there he also talks about Chazal, about the rabbis of the Talmud and the Mishnah, and what, how great their wisdom was. In the fourth essay, he gets back to the names of Hashem. And what's interesting is that you might notice that he talks about that in the second essay. And there are some topics that he talks about in a few different places in the book, which makes us wonder about how the book was, was written and how it was structured. But I'm not going to go into that now, just pointing that out. In um, the fourth essay, he talks about um, the stance or his attitude towards philosophical pursuit of knowledge and the other religious the other religious pursuits and how they pursue God and, and which one is closer to Judaism. He talks about angels' prophecy and he has a long discussion there where he talks about the wisdoms, the, the, the kinds of knowledge that were in among the Jewish people and specifically Sefer Yitzir, the book of creation. He has a long exp discussion explaining the basics or even more than that explaining the Mishnayas, the teachings of the Book of Creation. The fifth essay, he goes into philosophy in depth, but that is to say he sketches out his anti-philosophical stance and he attacks some tenets of Aristotelian philosophy. Along with that, he also discusses the Kalam, which you might remember from our discussion of the 
book Emunus Fideus, the Kalam was the Islamic theologians, and they had a method of dialectic, of proving, discussing the things that are important to their faith. And Rita Levy attacks that method too, but he also gives a nice, um, he also discusses at length what their method is and points out what he believes to be the flaws in that. There too, he talks about other philosophical matters in the fifth essay. He talks about the soul, the nature of the soul. He talks about free will, and he talks about divine providence. So that will serve as my introduction to this book. And now we will jump right in. I'm going to paraphrase for today's lecture. I'm going to paraphrase the first essay. So the essay begins with uh, Rebuda Levy, the author, telling us the impetus for this book. He says, people asked him how to respond against those who attack Judaism, either because they adhere to philosophy or they follow other religions, but that's going to be Islam and Christianity specifically. And, um, or they are within the Jewish people. They don't accept rabbinic Judaism. And Rudolf Levy says a very interesting thing, and this is where the book gets the name of the Kuzri. He says that this book, he's just putting forth in this book, something that he remembered that happened 400 years prior. And what he's referring to there is that there was a, a a story where the king of the Khazars, hence the name Khuzri, a pagan king, converted to Judaism after having a long period of study with a Chavar, a Talmud Chacham, and Buda Levi purports to record this conversation. Um, which is obviously very interesting, and the question is how much historicity is to this, to this event, to this, to this claim, to this legend about the conversion of the Khazar king, and how much historicity is, it, is there to this idea that there was this conversation that Rida Levi is recording. And Rida Levi says another very interesting thing to sort of to throw off the reader. He says, I'm going to record that conversation because that conversation serves my purposes, which is to show you to defend Judaism against its attacks and show you how, what Judaism is about. And he says, well, you know, this this Chavar, this Tam Chacham, had a conversation with the Khazar king. And many things that he said, I'm in agreement with him. I'm in agreement with him. And therefore, I'll record them. So he sort of gives us his out when he writes, starts his book by saying, I don't necessarily even agree to everything I'm writing. Um, he puts it forth as if he's recording a conversation that he doesn't even agree to in full. Which is very interesting if you're looking to do a deeper reading of the book. That's something to think about. What does the author mean when he, in the beginning of his book, gives us his illusion or cover to say, hey, I'm just telling you something that happened, which I agree with, basically, but not fully. So he's really covering himself from attack there. Why is he doing that? What does he mean to do by saying that? Are there going to be things here that he does not agree with? And then why would he present them as part of this conversation? So those are interesting questions, but... For now, what we're doing is just basic review. So here's the story, says Rudolevi. There was this king who had a dream, a repeated dream. In his dream, an angel appeared and told him, this pagan king, told him, your intention is good in the eyes of God, but your actions are not. Now, this king was very religious. In fact, he himself would do the sacrificial worship in their temple, the pagan worship. Despite him being so careful about his, his pagan worship, the angel repeatedly appeared to him with the same message, telling him that your intent is desirable, but your deeds are not. So the king was having this disturbing dream, and he understood that apparently He must go on a quest to find what actions are acceptable to God. He was a good guy, good heart. But apparently there's more to religion than having a good, good intentions, a good heart. And this, by the way, is a key idea in the book, because what the book is going to teach us, this book is going to tell us that the actions that the Torah prescribes in the specific places 
and the specific people doing them is of more importance than we can understand. So right away in the in the beginning of the book, it t- brings our focus towards action as being of a major importance in religion. So this king begins his quest to discover what he can learn about religion. The first one he looks to for enlightenment is a philosopher. So the philosopher gives him a long speech about the basic beliefs of the philosophers. Now, when we say the philosophers, that means Aristotelian philosophy, basically. Basically. Um, so what is the what are the tenets of philosophy? Well, that God doesn't care about you, cannot desire what you're doing, nor does he hate what you're doing, because he doesn't have emotions. And he doesn't change. In fact, said the philosopher to the king, that God doesn't even know the details of your life because God doesn't change. And to know details would suggest that God is changing. God doesn't know you, certainly doesn't know your intention, certainly doesn't hear your prayers. And even though the philosophers believe in God and that God created you, they don't mean that he literally created you. They mean that God is the true cause of everything that always was and always will be. The world existed forever. It's all due to God as the first cause, but not through any intention that he had, not through any desire that he had to create the world. Now, there is a thing called perfection. There is such a thing called human perfection. Human perfection is for a human, according to the philosopher, to perfect his intellect. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole philosophical theory here of the divine emanations and the intellects and how they control the world, but there's more to, there's. this is actually a pretty decent introduction to, if you want to know Aristotelian philosophy now it's presented in the literature of the Rishonim. This is a pretty good summary here, but it gets back to it more in the fifth essay, so we'll leave it for that. And basically the philosopher tells the king that by perfecting your intellect, you can become one with the angels. The angels are intellects, disembodied intellects. You can become one with the angels and you can gain immortality of the soul. But what you do, the specific actions that you do, is really very trivial. In fact, the philosopher tells the king, you're welcome to make up a religion of your own. The main thing is to have practices which engender fine characters, characteristics, humility, and um, not seeking luxuries. Basically, you want to you want to develop a good character so that you can perfect your intellect, so that you can become a divine being and then gain immortality fine king says to the philosopher good arguments actually but my dream was just the opposite my dream the point of my dream was that intention is not sufficient and i have to find the right actions clearly the king says Religious action is very important. And here he brings a very interesting proof. He says the Muslims and the Christians are fighting each other to death, killing each other, about religious action. Clearly, religious action is is taken very seriously by humanity. And I, too, want to find the, the true religious action. Which is very interesting because he's bringing proof from, contingent proof from just the way people are. And that's an important idea in this book, which is that, as we'll see, he actually takes history very seriously. Buddha takes history very seriously and believes that the nature of humans, the nature of the world... And how people experience the world is a very important source for truth. So, because he says to himself, um, I need to keep searching. I need to keep looking for the truth. Philosophers don't supply him with the truth. In fact, he says that if the philosophers really had the truth, how come they don't produce prophets? In fact, here's another important point in this book, which we'll see when we learn the Mara Vuchim that the Rambam disagrees with this. Yudha Levi says that people have true dreams of prophecy even without perfecting their intellect. And those people who have studied philosophy often specifically do, do not get receive prophecy, do not receive true dreams, which suggests then that the truth, religious truth, does not lie on the path of
of philosophy. So he says, well, the philosopher didn't satisfy my quest. The king says, I am going to have to ask the Muslims and the Christians. Undoubtedly, the truth lies in one of these two religions, but not by the Jews who are so despised and so hated. Okay, so right there, of course, you're really setting up this tension between the glory of Judaism and the state of the Jewish people. So first he calls a, he summons a, um, a Christian. And the Christian gives him a brief summary of Christianity. But the Christian begins, of course, with creation in six days, and Adam, and Noach. The Christian believes that God connects to people, to mankind, cares about them, and speaks to his prophets. And in fact, that he once dwelt among a very great nation, the Jews. And he says, basically, I believe in all of the Torah and all of the Jewish history. And I believe in the signs that can't be denied. Famous, well-known miracles. But then the Christian, of course, switches to Christianity. He says, eventually, the, late, the last generation of the Jews, God turned into a body and was a, um, a baby born to a virgin from a very exalted family among the noble family, among the Jews. He was a reveal, he appeared as a man, but was a, actually hidden, a secret was a God. Okay, and was the Messiah, called the Son of God. He's the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, the Christian said, we believe in the unity of God, although we express this trinity. And we believe that this Messiah dwelt among the Jews. Just like the Dover are lucky. Remember, I said this very key idea in this book, which is that the divine word, the divine connection was among the Jewish people. And the Messiah represented that. However, the Jews uh, rejected this Messiah. And therefore, God became angry at them. And God then had favor for those few individuals that followed the Messiah and then the nations that followed those individuals. We, although we are not descended from the, biologically from the Jews, we are, should be called B'nai Yisrael, the children of Yisrael, because we followed the Messiah and the apostles, those who followed him from the Jews, the 12 apostles that replaced the 12 tribes. Many Jews, too, followed those 12 apostles and they all became, um, they all claimed the crown of B'nai Yisrael. And in fact, he adds by saying that um, our laws are taken from the Torah and we do not doubt the truth of the Torah comes from God. As the Messiah said, I did not come to take away from the laws of the Torah, rather to support them. So the king's response to this is, listen, this religion is not rational. In fact, logic rejects most of the things that you said. If something would be experienced, something that you see and you cannot reject, you'll find some way to understand it. The same way scientists will do when they see something that's apparent, that doesn't seem to make sense to them. If they wouldn't see them with their own eyes through, ex through experiment, they wouldn't have believed them. But if they do believe them, if they do see them, then they'll make sense out of them. But the king says, I haven't experienced this. I never heard about this. And it's not something that I feel compelled to believe and to make sense out of. So I will leave it as something that's nonsense to me. With that, the king turns. Now to the next great faith, next great religion that he wants to investigate to see if perhaps he has to take on himself those practices. And that is, of course, Islam. And he invites a Islamic sage who says we believe in the unity of God, that God existed prior to anything, created the world. All men come from Adam and Noah. We, we insist that God is completely incorporeal. And anything in the Quran that appears to suggest that God is corporeal, we explain metaphorically. We also claim that our book is the word of God. And this book is very wondrous, which we have to accept because of its greatness. Nobody, and this is an idea in the Quran, that nobody in the world can would be able to author this book, even not one verse from it. Our prophet Muhammad is the end of the prophets and supersedes any Torah that preceded him and calls all the nations to accept Islam. The reward of a believer is for his soul and body to be resurrected in 
paradise where he will have all pleasures. And the greatest punishment is being in eternal damnation and fire. So, says the Kuzi, look, if you want to attract me to your faith, you have to present me with facts that are undeniable. Um, and even then, it would be hard to accept this idea that God, in fact, interacted and spoke to humans. Now, you claim that your book, which is in Arabic, is a wondrous and miraculous book, but I, said the king of the Khazars, I don't speak Arabic. If they read it to me, I won't even know the difference between that and any other Arabic book, so it doesn't speak to me. Well, says the Islamic wise man, he says, well, there were many miracles done by our prophet. Not that we use that as proof, but there were very many miracles done by him. So the king says back to him, look, if I am going to accept this illogical idea that God interacts with humans, I have to see some miracle, one substance changing into another. A kind of miracle that everyone would understand can only be done by someone who created the world from nothing. And here the king is setting up his criteria for what kind of miracle would make him accept something as illogical as saying that God interacts with humans. It would have to be a miracle that was done in front of numerous people who saw it with their very eyes and not just said to them by someone who saw it in a dream. Then I can accept this absurd idea that the creator of the world, who made heaven and earth, can interact with, will interact with man. So the Islamic Chacham says, well, our book is full of stories about Moshe and about B'nai Yisrael. Stories which are undoubtedly true. Everything that God did to Pare, splitting of the sea, and sinking of the Egyptians, and the mud in the desert, and the slav, and he's speaking to Moshe and Hasinai. And the fact that the sun stopped for Yeshua. Everything that happened before that. The Mabel and the overturning of Zemanuar. All these are undoubtedly true. So the king says, hey, look, you're bringing me proofs from the Torah of the Jews. I see then that I have no choice but to ask the Jews, since ultimately everything harks back to their Torah. So he calls a Jewish wise man and he asks him, what is your faith? And here's where things get really interesting. Of course, here's where we, the Rebbe the, Levi presents the essence of Judaism. Because the Chaver, we'll call him the Chaver, which is the word used in translation, which means Talmud Chacham, wise man. The Chaver responds to the king's query of, okay, tell me your faith, right? You ever have that? Someone asks you, what is Judaism about? What do you believe? And the Chaver says, I believe in the God of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, who took B'nai Yisrael out of Mitzrayim. with great wonders, sustained them in the desert, gave them the land of Canaan after splitting the sea, and sent Moshe with his Torah, and thousands of Nevi'im afterwards, prophets warning him to keep the Torah. We believe everything that's written in the Torah, which contains a massive amount of information. So, look at that. The Chavar did not talk about creed, did not talk about beliefs about the nature of God. The Chavar answered when queried about, it, well, what's your religion, what's your belief? He gave a historical account. He said, I believe in a God of specific people that did specific great actions. And the king responds by saying, I know I shouldn't have asked the Jews. I see that they are, have lost their true religion. Because shouldn't you have said that you believe in a God who controls the world? Created you? Whenever people talk about God, and all the religious people talk about God, they talk about the greatness of God. And here you're talking about history, your experience. So here's the key point of the book. The cover says, that's the kind of religion that a person can get through through eon, through thought. But that kind of religion also lends itself to many great doubts. And here's the first attack against philosophical pursuit of truth. He says the philosophers never agree about anything. Because they're arguments. And not all of them can be proven. That's why, says the Chavar, our religion, Judaism, is not about things that we can know through logic. It's about an experience we had involving God. So here, Rabbi Yudalevi presents his, his whole idea about Judaism and shifts 
the essence of what Judaism is about to an experience, an experience of a very certain people, very, very specific people, that is, of course, B'nai Yisrael, at a very specific point in time. That is the essence of Judaism, and that is what gives them the message to the world. But, of course, we'll talk about that soon. I'll get to that soon. Is this message for the world, or is it just for the Jewish people, considering that it's not about some objective reality that can be discussed, but it's rather about a subjective experience. Now the king is impressed and says, okay, this is getting interesting. I want to hear more. Okay. So the cover says the following. And there's the mushal, famous mushal of the king of India. He says, let's say you heard about the king of India. You heard about him, but you heard that he's a great guy and a very kind person. And he has a very wonderful nation. Should you, um, should you revere him? Should you respect him? Says the king. Well, why should I? Maybe it's, maybe it's not true. How do I know it's true? How do I know that he's really such a good king? Well, says the chaver. Well, let's say people, messengers came to you from India with gifts, and they're very clearly gifts from the from the palaces of India, and they come with a letter that's very clearly from the king. And along with the letter, there's wonderful medicines that heal you and keep you healthy and poisons for your enemies. Wouldn't you then have to respect this king of India that you never saw? The king said, well, yes, of course, then I would too. And if someone would ask you, said the Chavar, what's this king like? How would you describe him? So because we want to describe him by what I saw with my own eyes. So the Chavar, that's exactly what happened to us. Because when Moshe presented himself to Parai and said who he's representing, God. He said the God of the Hebrews, which means the God of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Because Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, the fact that God had watched over them was well known. He didn't say, Moshe did not introduce himself to power saying, I was sent to you by the God of the heavens. Nor he didn't say, I was sent by my creator, by your creator. He said, I was sent by the God of the Hebrews. Meaning, he pointed to a historic reality. Just like just like uh, the, the Chaber says to the king, you would respect the king of India if you had experiential knowledge of his existence and his kindness. And here's a famous thing where Yudah says, look, the first of the Ten Commandments is I am Hashem your God who took you out of the land of Egypt, not I am Hashem who created the world. And this is brought down by the Ibn Ezra on that Pasuk, Ibn Ezra, according to legend, was the son-in-law of Yudah Levi. And now the king realizes where this is heading, and he says, then Judaism is only for the Jews, because you're saying Judaism is all about your experience. And the Chavah says, yes, that's right. That's right. We don't seek to make all humanity into Jews. In fact, if someone were to join the Jewish people from the other nations, he would receive from God's goodness, but he would never be equal to, he would never be the same as a Jew. Because the Torah obligates us because of our unique experience, our unique connection to God, because we are the choicest of all mankind. So here, Yudah Levi shifts into saying, okay, yes, it's about a very specific experience in time and it's not for all humans, but there's a reason why the Jews experienced it. It's because they are the best. So, the king says, now you have to explain that. You have to explain why are you saying that the Jews are greater, are the choicest people? What makes you better than anyone else? And here the Chaber says, look, the, um, the world is divided, the old classification, into minerals, vegetables, let's say plants, animals, and then above that is humans. Okay, true. What then is higher than a human? The Chaber asks the king. So he says, wise people. Chava says, no, 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 no. I don't mean just a better human. I mean something that puts him in a completely different category. Okay, the king says, there's nothing. Man is the highest in the world of, of the tangible sensory world. So the Chava, well, what if I would point to a human who can go in fire and not be burned? 
who can last for a very long time without being hungry, without receiving food or drink, whose face shines, of course, talking about Moshe Rabbeinu, that no one could look at him, who never became ill and weak. And when this super person reaches the end of his days, he dies peacefully, like someone going to his bed at a set time, going to sleep. And that person knows the secrets of what was and what will be. Would that not make him superhuman? Superman. So the king admits that, yes, well, if this exists, this is already divine. This is godly, angelic. If it exists. And this, however, cannot be explained by natural law, by science. This, if it exists, would have to be explained by the Indian, by a law of the Indian Alaki, by the divine matter. So here's an idea that if there is something beyond humans, if this Moshe Rabbeinu figure exists, then we have to, this is an idea, a fundamental idea in the whole book, then we have to accept a kind of science, a kind of information, kind of system that is beyond any of the science systems of science with which we are familiar something that has complete rules of its own. So, the Chavar says, yeah, guess what? What I described to you is, only, is actually only some of the descriptions of that prophet that nobody disputes. And through him, through Moshe, it was revealed to the people that the divinity connects to them. And that they have a God who controls them and repays them, reward and punishment. He told them what they didn't know. He told them about the world coming into being from nothing and the genealogy of people until the flood. And how the 70 nations came from shame, and how the languages developed, etc., etc., etc. So, what Rita Levi did here is that he basically said, Look, there's something beyond humans, and that is Moshe. And through Moshe, the, all the Jewish people are very great. And the reason why is because the, the role of the prophet is very important in this book. And Rita Levi says in another place that even being in the presence of a prophet changes a person permanently. So, this Every prophet, Moshe at their, at their head, is a superman, as it were. And that affects all of the Jewish people that are in the presence of the prophets. Then Rebuda Levi talks about the fact that we have the Chavar. Well, Rebuda Levi is putting it into the mouth of the Chavar. Talks about the fact that we have this specific genealogy. Back to the Mauritian. Um, indicates the truth of the Torah that all the Jews accept this chronology. And he explains how the genealogy of Adam, the greatness of Adam passed to his children because Adam, Harishan himself, was a great person who was worthy of God talking to him, Dabar Alaki. And that, Dabar Alaki, the divine connection passed from Adam was preserved like a garin, like the seed of a fruit. Although there's some shells, and the shells are the other children of Adam that weren't worthy, but that passed eventually to the individual, one individual to the next, until Yaakov had the 12 tribes, and they, as a group, were worthy of connecting to the Dabar al-Laki. And he talks about Adam, um, Avram, who was part of that generation with the with the, um, the Dahaflaga, with the world where the language is developed, and Avram was called Ivri because he spoke the language of his grandfather, Aver. When Moshe came to B'nai Israel, they put him to the test. They questioned whether he's truly a prophet. They were skeptical. Eventually, they accepted him. People like that would not have believed a made-up story Moshe would have been making up the history of the world from before him. They would not have accepted it. And that proves that it was, that proves to us that it was true. Okay. Another truth that's accepted worldwide, which Buddha Levi uses to prove the truth of the Torah and creation, is the fact that there's a seven-day week. It's a universal. It's accepted throughout the universe. It's throughout the world. It's a seven-day week. Where does that come from? There's nothing natural about that. It must be, it comes from the Torah, 
and that we're all descended from Adam, who developed the seven-day week based on the seven days of creation described in Bereshis. Similarly, the number 10, the fact that there's a decimal system, and that is accepted worldwide, supports the Torah's narrative that we're all descended from one man. Okay, now here the king brings up that the Indians have a chronology that goes back um, tens, I'm sorry, millions of years. So the the cover says that they don't have a proper tradition about this without any debate, and that nation doesn't have true traditions. In fact, they only have these numbers in order to try to anger and upset the people who have this belief in, in religious beliefs that the world was created fairly recently. So he rejects that as having any validity um, uh, as a tradition. So basically, Rabbi Dalai is arguing for the validity of the Jewish tradition, saying this is a strong tradition, and he compares and contrasts it with other traditions that he does not respect, that he does not accept. Well, says the king, but what about the philosophers? Philosophers say that the world is not millions of years old, but the world is eternal. Said the Chavar, the philosophers come from the Greeks. The Greeks never had religion as a tradition. Because the wisdom that comes along with this Dover Loki, with the divine connection, went from Adam to the children of shame, the chosen one of Nayak. So here's this idea of this chosen person who's worthy of the Dover Loki, of the connection to God. And then it went to the Semites. But the Greeks were from Yephes. They didn't have a revealed religion. And in fact, this is an idea that appears in other books. In fact, says Abu Dalevi, the Greek wisdom itself was rooted in the Jewish wisdom. The Greeks inherited it from the Persians, who they vanquished. They had got it from the Babylonians, who had, of course, defeated the Jews. So ultimately, it's rooted in Jewish wisdom. Even the Greek wisdom, says Buda Levi and the Rambam and others, is rooted in Jewish wisdom. Says the Kuzri to um, the Chavar, so should we not trust Aristotle's wisdom? Says the Chavar, yes, we should not. And here's where he gets his first knocking philosophy and saying, well, Aristotle didn't have a true tradition. Because of that, he had to try to figure out things with his mind, with logic alone. And he couldn't imagine that the world had a beginning, which is truly, and it's truly just as difficult to imagine that the world is infinite, existed forever. But Aristotle determined that the proofs, the logical arguments for Kadamos, for the fact that the world existed for eternity, are better than saying that it came into existence from nothing. But that's only because, again, that's only because, he says, he wasn't privy to this tradition which we had in B'nai Yisrael. If he would have had this tradition that the world is created, then he would have used his logic to support that. Now, the king says, wait a second, philosophy is not about what you want to believe, it's about the truth. It's about logical truth. So the Chavar says, no, but there is no logical proof about this question. If there was logical proof that the world always existed, then certainly the Torah wouldn't contradict it. But there is no logical proof about that. And the Torah tells us that there are miracles. Miracles indicate that God can do what he wants, can change the world. Since God created the world, through his will, he can also change it as per his will. The eternity of the world or its creation next to Hilo is something that cannot be proven either way through logic. And what tells us that what's created is our tradition from Adam to Noah from Moshe and the testimony of prophecy, which is more trusted than the testimony of logic. But then Rudy Levis has a very important point. He says, if a person, a Torah Jew, had some logical reason to believe that there was some highly material, a, a prime matter that always existed with God, which is Plato's theory of creation, that, there was, that God didn't create ex nihilo, didn't create something from nothing, but there was something, prime matter, which was always coexistent, co-eternal with God, from which God created the world. 
He says, that would not deny our belief that the world was created, um, came into being fairly recently, and the first people were Adam and Eve. So he's saying that you could believe in a Platonic theory of creation and still be a faithful Jew. This is something that Maimonides talks about too in the Guide for the Perplexed, whether that is compatible with Jewish belief. Yehuda Levi says it is. So the Kosher says, okay, believe it at that. I want to get back to, um, says the king, I want to get back to how you came to believe, how you Jewish people came to believe that God will interact with humans. With the lowly physical world. So now, Rita Levy goes into a theory or an explanation of, of the way that the spiritual world, let's say, or the divine world, interacts with the physical world. And he says that um, the fact that the world is so ordered, everything is so perfect, how does that happen? He, he sort of turns it back to the king. And the king says, well, that's due to teva, to nature. What's this teva, says the What's this force? What's this nature force that controls everything? And the king says, well, I heard from wise men that nature is a force. And we don't know what it is, but undoubtedly the wise people know what it is. And here the king, the Chavar tells him, and he's basically trying to wean him off philosophy, and he says the wise people know no more than we do. You know how they define nature? And he quotes Aristotle in physics. It's the cause... Let me try to get this. Um, it's the underlying cause of all phenomena which cause change within a physical object. Intrinsic change, not accidental, and makes the object come to rest intrinsically and not accidentally, which is basically a fancy way of saying that there's some force that makes things the way they are. So that's what the Kuzri says. He says, look, all he's saying is that there's a cause, and that's he calls that nature. And the cover says, exactly. Exactly. We just have this term called nature, but what is it? What is it rooted in? And the king coming around and says, oh, I see that the philosophers trick us by having these fancy words. Like saying nature is wise, nature is active, nature creates, really. We should say God does all that. And the Chabot says that's true because they're the elements and they do what they do, but the forms that things have and the fact that everything is so perfect, everything is measured, and therefore... Um, things come into being in this world <clears throat> in their forms, in their species that comes from a, something that has wisdom and power and, and ability to do you want to call that nature, that's fine as long as you understand that the wisdom is not nature's wisdom there's some wisdom that comes from God so then therefore he says look Look, you see then that God does interact with the world. And here is one of the most famous lines in the book. And he says, this idea that God interacts with the world is the Sherish Amuna and Sherish Hamari. It's the sea, it's the root of belief, it's the root of, of religion, and it's also the root of rebellion. How could the root of religion be the root of rebellion? Says the Chavar. And here's another key point of the book. Because to know the rules of what it takes to interact with God is not something that humans could know. So on the one hand, the fact that God interacts with man is the root of religion. On the other hand, and therefore, okay, so you know God interacts with man and you could accept the Torah that tells us specifically which actions to do. But if you try to make your own law and to figure out how to get God to communicate with you and interact with you, then you are rebelling against God. And he gives a very interesting example, a marshal here, the parable. Someone walks into a pharmacy and he knows that, hey, all this medicine does great stuff. So he grabs some medicine off the shelf and he thinks he's going to self-medicate. But really, it's the wisdom. It's the doctor who knows how the medicine works and what to prescribe and how and how to take it. That's really what heals the patient, not just the, the herbs. So <clears throat> until Moshe says, most people were just guessing how to connect to God. And you can't do that on your own. You need God to tell you how to do it. And that's what the Torah does about. Okay, so the king says, I want to understand more how your religion came to be. How did it become accepted after, you know, usually religions develop 
and there's usually a small band of people that accept them and then it gets accepted over a whole nation said the Chavir well that's how the religions that developed through intellect came to be it happened human religions but our religion which comes from God happened suddenly like creation itself the king says really hard to believe and the king said and the Chavir says well it's actually more astounding because B'nai Yisrael were in Egypt 600,000 people of a family of the 12 tribes waiting for the redemption promised to bring them to the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan was in, the, was in the hands of seven nations. Powerful nations, while B'nai Israel were weak and suffering. Paro. God sent Moshe and Aaron, who stood with their weakness against power and all his might. All power they had was the ability to change the world for miracles. And power could do nothing to them, not protect himself from the ten plagues. He describes the plagues and the warnings and the indication that this doesn't come from nature, <clears throat> rather it was from God. That night, the faithful night, at midnight, all the firstborns died and the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire led the Jews in the desert. Moshe and Aaron, who were 80, over 80 years old, they only had a few mitzvahs from Adam and Noach at that point. Moshe kept those mitzvahs and added to them on the way. Paro <clears throat> chased them and drowned the Yamsuf and the well-known story. Says the king, okay, this is clearly the Dover Alaki being active in the world. And this is something that any person has to accept. So see, it's experience, the Jewish experience, which is at the root of how we accept the Torah. And the Chavah continues the description of the desert <clears throat> where Hashan had the man. The king says, I have to accept that too. And didn't didn't fall on Shabbos. That indicates Mun fell six days a week, and on Shabbos that indicates that Shabbos comes from God. <clears> Trevor <throat> says that yes, Shabbos is also revealed in the creation of the world, not just the Mun. Now, <clears throat> there's one more thing, says the Trevor. The people, even after all these miracles, were still doubting whether, in fact, God can speak to humans. Perhaps, says said Chavar, perhaps the people thought that ideas of the Torah are developed in the human mind and then God ratifies it or supports it. But really, does it start from God? And they said, how could God who's spiritual speak to human? That's physical. So God wanted them not to have this doubt. So he told them to sanctify themselves and to prepare themselves to hear the word of God. And this is when, of course, he's talking about Naiman Harsina, the great revelation receiving the Torah. He says too, further, that they all prepared themselves to reach the level of prophecy. And this is something that when we see the word of the Rambam does not accept that they were all prophets. But Yudah Levi says that each reached, they all, the Jews, reached the level of prophecy and spoke to God face to face. After three days, with all the miracles and the thunder and the lightning, etc., etc., they heard the word of God and they heard the Ten Commandments, which are the root of all Torah. Among that was Shabbos too. Okay. The Ten Commandments they heard not from Moshe, not from individuals, but rather from God's mouth. They couldn't see it face to face. From that on, from then on, only Moshe spoke to God. But the point is that they saw, says Abid Levi, that the word comes from God, and Moshe didn't prepare himself for it. Unlike the philosophers say, according to Abid Levi, the philosophers say that prophecy comes from the soul of a man who connected his intellect and cleaves to the angels, as we read earlier from the uh, philosopher's argument to the king. In fact, no, it comes direct. It starts from God. That's what the people knew by seeing um, the revelation of the giving of the Torah to Harsinai and seeing the writing, the divine writing on the luchas, on the tablets. And then they had, of course, the luchas, the tablets from the Aaron which were in the tabernacle, which there was among the Jews throughout the time of prophecy, approximately 900 years. Now, the king says, oh, well, you know what? I hear your story. Now I understand why you can't be blamed for considering God to be corporeal because God came and spoke to you. So the king makes this mistake of thinking, ah, oh, you treat God as a body. And I understand why you do because you experienced him as a body. And the Chavah corrects and says, no, no, no. We do not believe something that's impossible. 
or something that's illogical. In fact, the second of the Ten Commandments warns us against making an image. The idea of that is that God is not corporeal. And then he does something very interesting, which he alludes to a few times in the book. He says, if the soul is non-corporeal, and this is a question of what the soul is, but here he's understanding that the soul is something separate from the human body, which is a question he returns to a few times, and it starts, the question starts, and even precedes, really, Aristotle's The Animal, where he discusses what is the soul. But the Rudolph says, if the soul, which is the human being, is not even the body, certainly God is not a body. When we talk about Moshe speaking to us, he says, well, what's, what is speaking to us? Moshe's tongue? Moshe's heart? Moshe's brain? No, that's all Moshe used. So what is Moshe? Moshe is a soul which is not a body and doesn't have any space. So a body, I mean a soul, I'm sorry, a soul would be described with angelic descriptions. Spiritual. So certainly God is described as, as, as a ways that he's not, um, not physical. What exactly happened then? Did God create something? A sound? That could be. But the point is that the way God does things is not through being a body. And when we say God spoke to us, we don't mean that God somehow has physical attributes. No way. He says that when God speaks to a prophet, same way, let's say, when you say God split the sea, what that means is that God made this happen not through any intermediaries, not through any physical intermediaries the way we would do accomplish action. So when God speaks to a prophet, what that means is that God makes that in the ear there is a sound wave that the Navi hears, the prophet hears, and the people can hear too. So this is a brief explanation of prophecy. We're going to get back to prophecy more later in a later essay. But the cover says, and this is another common thing, he says, I am not asserting that this is exactly the way it is. It could be that it's deeper than, than I have the ability to understand. All we can say is that the ones who were privy, the ones who were experienced, the revelation in our Sinai, was certain that the word came from God without an intermediary, like creation itself. And that's why they came to believe in the Torah. And they came to believe that the world was created from nothing because they saw something coming from nothing and they stopped. And this belief or this experience caused them to not have that question, not have that false faith in the idea of the eternity of the world. So, basically what he's saying is the theme over here is that Rabbi Levi is very faithful to the Torah and says, I'm not going to read too much into it, I'm going to take it as it is and not claim that I can explain it fully. Now the king says, you know, you guys, you shouldn't be so proud of yourself because after this great revelation, you'd serve the ego, the golden calf. And the Chabra says, wait a second, you know what? I want to tell you something. It's not so bad. Not as bad as you think. And the king said, how could he say it's not so bad? And the Chabra says, first of all, I want to tell you how great these people are. They had the daughter of Lucky. First it was by Adam. He was the most perfect man. From him it passed, this ability to connect to God, passed through his DNA, as it were. He himself was called ben Kim, son of God, because he was godly. From all of them, only Shays was like Adam from his children. He was the most selective of his children. From that, from Shays, this greatness was passed on to um, the individuals till Noah, the ten generations till Noah. From Noah until Avram. Now, not everyone had it. He says Terach didn't have it, but he had it in his genes. Avram. passed it to Yitzchak, and that's why he sent away his other children. So there's some special people there. Yitzchak passed it to Yaakov, Yaakov passed it to all his children, and then there's a nation that can connect to the divine idea. They under providence, even in Egypt, God caused the nation to increase. Like if you have a good tree, you're going to make it, you're going to propagate it. Eventually the fruit, the ripe fruit is Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam, and great people. They were also sinners. But even sinners among the Jews are special because they retain within their own nature this possibility to have children who are going to connect to God. So here, Rabbi Levi is making the Jewish 
qualities into something that's in their very essence, in their very nature, in their biology. So he says, okay, fine. The king says, very impressive. But after the eagle, after the eagle, how can you say you're so great? So what the king, what the Yehuda Levi, and here I'm going to wrap this up briefly and quickly. He says a very interesting thing. He says, the eagle was a, was a, um, a physical item that was used by the Jewish people as a way of representing that God is among them. And it was no different than the items that they were in fact commanded to make. The Jewish people were commanded to make a tabernacle and to make kruvim, statues. And those statues would hover, cover the luchas tablets that were in the Aaron. And, those, and the Aaron would be sometimes even called Hashem because Hashem is manifest there over the Aaron. And therefore they point to that and they bow to that and say there is Hashem because that's where Hashem becomes manifest. Similarly, similarly, when they were, were made a golden calf, it's that they took matters into their own hands and they, they determined that this would be their symbol, their tangible symbol of how they could relate to God because back then that's what people needed to relate to God. Tangible symbols. The problem is that they were doing it without God's commandment and this is the idea that Buddha Lega says earlier that the only way we can access the connection to God is in the very specific ways that God commanded us. And here he says a fascinating thing. He says even to build synagogues without a divine command, we would only we only do that because it's necessary. But really, we believe that we're only supposed to do exactly what God commands us to do. In other words, we can't know what to do it. So now the king says, okay, you got me. You made me understand my dream, which is that in order to approach God, you need to do the right actions. And in order to do the right actions, you need divine Revelation. The king and the Chavah says, you're right. Divine revelation happened to Moshe and he gave it over to the people. All the details, for example, the details of how to bring sacrifices are very, very specific. And he says, just like, just like in nature, there's very specific <clears throat> uh, ratios, proportions for anything to happen in nature. So too, for God to connect to the people, everything that's done has to be, has to be exact. Chavar says, I'm sorry, the king says, this is a religion that must be accepted. And the king then asks a question. He says, look, you know, you have this religion and you're saying Moshe called the people who experienced this to follow this religion, but how come the Torah wasn't given to all people? If God wants people to do this, then if this is what God's wisdom dictates, why is it only given to the Jews? Says the Chavar, well, wouldn't it be better for all animals to be humans? Same argument. I remember I told you, says, says the Chavar, that within humans, there are humans that are special. They receive that original greatness of Adam and are different than other humans and are connected to the divine. All of them, and here's the point I said earlier, all of them, he says, seek to be the level of prophecy and many of them reach it. See, the point is that prophecy, according to the lady, is really what makes a person superhuman, but all Jews are supposed to try to attain prophecy. And even those who don't reach it are close to it by being close to the Nevi'im. And he says, anyone who's close to a prophet becomes spiritual when he gets close to the prophet and he's different than human beings in his purity and his connection to humility and purity. Which that, then, he says, that kind of spiritual experience was the greatest sign for reward in the next world. Because what's the next world about? What's eternity of the soul about? Being in connection with the divine. And they experience that here in this world. Says the king, yeah, but the other religions promise these great rewards in the next world. Rich rewards. And the Chavah said back, yes, it promises rich rewards in the next world, but Judaism says us that we can experience the greatest rewards, greatest spiritual rewards right here in this world. The Torah doesn't say if you do the mitzvos, I will bring you after your death to gardens and pleasures and delights. It says, you will be a treasured nation. I will be your God. People among you will go up to heaven. I will dwell amongst you. You will see the angels. You will see divine providence. It will rain when you deserve it. And it won't rain if you sin. So you'll be in connection with the divine word. That is, that is actually coming to contact with the divine. And that is the greatest gift.
Now, the king brings up the fact that the Jewish people today, in that time, were very lowly. And he says, Aha, well, that should prove then that you're very lowly people. And here the Chavah says a very interesting thing. He says, look, the Christians and the Muslims, they take pride in those people that suffered for their faith. And he quotes here the New Testament about turning the other cheek. And the king says, yeah, well, if you would accept this with humility, your state, then you would have a point. But if you had the ability, you would kill your enemies too. And the Chavah says, you're right, king of the Khazars, you've got me. If we would accept our state with humility to God, then the divine connection wouldn't have left us for such a long time. But if, in fact, you're right, many people among us don't accept it with humility. And even those people still get great reward because if they wanted to, with a word, they could just convert and, and avoid all the trouble that the Jewish people suffer. But he says there that in fact the Jewish nation as mentioned earlier is unique and even someone who joins the Jewish nation is not the same as a Jew. He comes very close to God but he's not the same as a native Jew. Only a native Jew can be a prophet. See, prophecy is at the center of being superhuman and only Jewish native Jews can be prophets. Gerim, proselytes, can only be chassidim, chacham, but they cannot be prophets. And then he says about the other promises, about the other, about the, about the reward in the next world and, and punishment in the next world, even though the Torah doesn't talk much about Gan Eden and Gehenim, you'll find a lot of it in Chazam. And in fact, the king says the back, okay, so then the difference is only the details, and the Chavah says, in fact, even in the detailed description of heaven and hell that you find in other nations, you could find those two in Chazal if you look for them. And this ends the first essay. I think this gives you a sense of this book and how unique it is, how wonderful it is, and how it has ideas that are so natural, we can say, to Judaism as it appears in the Torah without really adding to it, seeing how it develops from the Torah itself. And that's why this Sefer is so powerful and speaks to a lot of people even today um, in a way that some of the other books that we're looking at sometimes don't. And not that they shouldn't necessarily, I'm not commenting on that, but this one is a very intuitive, very practical, very real books and full of powerful ideas. Next time we will go further and study the next 